Well, today's message is simply called Savior. Uh, on Palm Sunday, which is uh, what today is, uh, we recognize that it may be a little bit weird if you are not able to join us for whatever reason on Good Friday. We hope you can join us on Good Friday. It's a little bit weird uh, because traditionally what the church would do is to celebrate Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday uh, is usually a very festive kind of atmosphere. But uh, one of the things that, that um, I learned in seminary is that Palm Sunday is always a little bittersweet. And uh, Palm Sunday, uh, as you may know, is uh, that celebration where Jesus is entering the city of Jerusalem. And it's very triumphant. And, and just, you know, the people are yelling these things that we'll explain in a moment. They're waving these palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna! And they seem so happy. And, you know, it, it seems like such a, a awesome, uh, uh, victorious type celebration. And if we don't get to Good Friday, and, and sometimes people can't come, uh, you may come next Sunday, and then it's another big victorious celebration, right? He is risen! Yay! And you go from victory to victory, and you miss something very important in the middle, right? And that is the cross. And so, um, recently, uh, in the past, you know, maybe a few decades, uh, um, churches have come to uh, start calling Palm Sunday Palm slash Passion Sunday uh, to, to acknowledge that you know, uh, the story of Jesus suffering as well. And I wanted to do something slightly different today. You may have noticed that we did not read the traditional Palm Sunday passage. Um, we're going to uh, be diving into this story that comes right after the story that's usually read on Palm Sunday. Uh, but I want to show you that those two stories are connected in many ways. And it all points to the fact that we need a Savior. That's why today's message is called the Savior. And so uh, the story with Palm Sunday, like I said, the people were waving these palm branches. Why were they doing that? What, what was that about? Uh, so it, it's in the palm branches also in what they are saying. They are saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So there's several things you see here. Hosanna was a term that, w- that literally means save. Uh, but it was something that uh, uh, was yelled, uh, it, 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 but it, it kind of was something that you would yell, like if a conquering hero came into your city, right? Like if you were liberated, um, that you would yell this, Hosanna! And so it became this expression of praise. That's why it doesn't really make the most sense in this context where it says, Hosanna in the highest, save in the highest, Right? That, that doesn't really seem like good grammar there. But this idea of this praise, you know, we want to give God the great, the highest praise, right? We are uh, not just a little happy, we are really, really happy, right? Not just Hosanna in the lowest, Hosanna in the highest. So they are very, very happy. But you see that clue also in how they address Jesus. Hosanna to the Son of David. Who do they think Jesus is? They think Jesus is the Messiah. And Messiah was supposed to be a king, right? He was supposed to be a king in the line of David that would restore the fortunes of Israel, that would overturn uh, their oppressors. In this case, it would have been the Roman Empire. Right, that he would liberate them from Rome and Israel would rise to power again. They would start a kingdom, right? And that is why Jesus's language is so interesting, that his central message is that he is ushering in the kingdom of God, right? And so uh, the people are very excited, but we know very soon they are going to be disappointed. This is why Palm Sunday is so bittersweet. There were probably a lot of people in the city because this was the Passover time. So there were probably many Jews who came from all around, from different regions to celebrate Passover together. Um, and so there are probably lots of people there at this very triumphant moment of Jesus entering the city. And by the way, Jesus already was sort of defying expectations that he was coming in on a donkey or in some of the translations, the foal of a donkey on a young donkey or a baby donkey, right? And so, you know, 
you see this little silhouette and it's a little funny, right? Look at Jesus and his legs are kind of like splayed out, right? Because uh, likely if he was on a baby donkey, um, you know, he would have probably had to sit kind of funny <laughs> a little bit. And conquering heroes, as you know, normally come in on mighty, you know, stallions on a, uh, on a mighty steed, you know, a beautiful white horse or something like that. But Jesus came in on a donkey. And we are told that this was kind of fulfilling prophecy, that the king would come in humble, not high and mighty. And so this is already perhaps defying some of the expectations of the people who were expecting a conquering hero to overturn uh, the armies of Rome. Uh, but uh, towards the end of the week, we know that there may have been perhaps people who were there in the city cheering Jesus. And by the end of the week, their cheers turn into yells. And the yells are not, Hosanna in the highest, yay! It turns into, crucify him, crucify him. And this is why Palm Sunday is always a little ironic, right? Perhaps some of the same people who are yelling, save us, yay, hooray, Jesus, were also yelling, crucify him. And they turn so quickly, right? After this story, Jesus goes in and continues to defy expectations because Jesus doesn't play by the the traditional rules of religion or of power. And so he goes into the temple. So this is uh, uh, the, the Palm Sunday passage usually ends in verse 11. So this is right after it. And Jesus entered the temple. These two stories are connected. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. There are many great sermons. I've actually preached this sermon, uh, I think, last semester, uh, uh, last year, uh, in the fall, I think, at some point, about Jesus's anger and how, uh, that, that we need to deal with anger, but it's not necessarily a sin to be angry. It's just a human condition. It's what you do with that anger, right? And being able to deal with it in an appropriate way where you're not sinning against your brothers and sisters, right? Um, that's a great sermon. That's not today's sermon. <laughs> today's sermon, we're going to focus on why is Jesus doing this? What does this mean? How does this connect to Palm Sunday and what we just saw of the people welcoming the Messiah, right? The King. How does this connect to Jesus's mission and what Jesus was trying to do with the people, right? Because it's a weird passage. You know, Jesus just starts flipping tables, right? And, you know, we have to make note of that because... Uh, even though we're not going to uh, get, you know, fully into the anger aspect, um, but it's very out of character for Jesus, isn't it? You know, Jesus is bold. I mean, he's not a wimp by any means. He doesn't back down, right? He's not passive. Oh, I'm sorry, right? Like, like he doesn't back down, you know, but I wouldn't necessarily characterize him as violence, right? And this seems pretty violent. Flipping over the tables and, um, in another uh, uh, version of this story, he, he makes a whip and he starts like whipping all the animals so that they all run out of the temple. And so, you know, what's going on here? Uh, what, what was this about? Why were there even money changers and people selling pigeons and stuff in the temple? So you may know that when people go to the temple, they're going to do sacrifices. And this is a big money time for the temple, right? Because this is the Passover, And so a lot of people would have been coming to the city wanting to give their sacrifices. Now, if you are coming in from out of town and you're traveling with your family and, you know, you're coming into Jerusalem for a few days, it's probably kind of inconvenient to bring extra livestock, right, to uh, give sacrifices, and so maybe this is kind of like when you go to graduation, you, you, maybe you guys go to someone's graduation and it's like at a football stadium or something and you go there and you're like, oh shoot, I forgot to buy flowers. And then there's someone there who's like, get your flowers here, flowers for graduation, you know, and you're like, oh, hey, that's convenient, right? But 
I don't know, if you're like me, I'm a little suspicious of those flower vendors. I'm thinking like, okay, that's very convenient that I don't have to carry around flowers in my car or have to go to some other place, go to a florist and buy the flowers and bring them into the stadium, right? It's very convenient. But what do you usually think about those people? You're like, man, they're going to charge you for it, right? They're going to charge you kind of a convenience fee, right? And so I never want to buy the flowers from those people because I kind of figure I'll probably be paying like double, you know? It was probably kind of like that. You know, like, hey, we want to help you guys out. You know, you don't want to bring in your pigeons from, you know, uh, a thousand miles away and bring that on your pilgrimage. What if they die on the way? You got to water the pigeons, right? You have to deal with pigeon poop. You know, for a small transactional fee, we will conveniently sell you pigeons here. It may have been the case. Right? Not only that, but the money that you used in the temple, you couldn't bring in foreign currency and defile the temple by paying the temple tax because there was a tax, right, to maintain the temple. You can't pay the temple tax with some foreign money, right? You have to use our money. But with your foreign money, because you live in a different place and you make money in a different place and they pay you with foreign money, we will make it very convenient for you. It's like the airport and you land and you're in this different place and they will conveniently change out your money for you for a small transactional fee, right? Where does that money go? Where does that money go? I'm sure some of it goes to maintaining the temple, but didn't Pastor Steve just explain to you there was a temple tax? Where did the money go? We don't know for sure, but we do know this. The priests at the time the religious elites were probably also landowners. Religious elite were probably pretty well off. They weren't like maybe mega rich, super rich. They weren't like millionaires or billionaires, but they were not peasants. They were not the lowest class, the laborers, the fishermen, these kinds of people that probably would have flocked to Jesus. These were powerful and rich people. And they probably were profiting from that money. Many of the people who were coming and paying the temple taxes, many of the people who were coming and doing these ritual sacrifices, many of the people who were very poor probably worked on their lands, right? And what does Jesus do? He comes and he upends the whole thing. What does he say? His words are telling. My house shall be called a house of prayer. And by the way, the whole passage, which most Jews would have known, the whole passage reads like this. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you make it a den of robbers. You have made it something else. You have made religion a way for you to get rich and a way for you to be powerful. You have levied religion. You have used it. There are ins and there are outs. And many people are on the outside. And Jesus says, no, this is not the kingdom of God. He upends the whole thing. And What you see is uh, very telling because I wanted to show you this part. But this is a weird story, and it's really weird if you don't see the context. Jesus coming as the king and what comes directly after it. And the blind and the lame came to him. Again, the and is a clue that it is connected to what just happened. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. What does indignant mean? They were mad, but they weren't just mad. They were hopping mad. They were killing mad. Right? They wanted to kill Jesus. And they did. Do you ever wonder why they killed Jesus? 
I mean, it's not just because they were jealous. Oh, okay, sure. You know, jealousy, you hear about people in, in, in a fit of jealousy, they kill somebody. But that doesn't really seem like, you know, distinguished priests and Pharisees and scribes. That doesn't really seem like their style. These were very well-respected people. You know, that they're just like, oh my gosh, we're so jealous that Jesus, you know, he, he's taking all our followers away. I mean, maybe they thought that, but would you really kill someone over that? But you might kill someone over this. Your lifestyle, your way of life, your religion, all of that, all of the things that you believe in and you live for and that have made you powerful. And someone comes in and starts flipping it all over. And people start following him. Not only that, but why were they indignant? Because he was doing these things, but also because they were crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They know that they are calling Jesus the Messiah, the king. So where, where would they fall in this? If, if Jesus is the king, where would they fall in this? Do you think that they get to order the king around? <laughs> If Jesus comes and takes over the joint, they got to follow Jesus. And they're like, "Mm -mm, that's not happening. That's not happening. We are not giving up our power. And so this story, brothers and sisters, is a story about power. Did you know that? How do I know this? How do I know it's a story about power? Because of what they're yelling. What are they yelling? They're yelling, save us. Save us. Now, this is something about a savior that I've learned. (laughs) In order to be saved, you have to know that you need to be saved. Right? I mean, well, you have to be in a situation to be saved. If you don't need to be saved, then you don't need a savior. I guarantee you, (laughs) the Pharisees were not yelling out, save us, Jesus. Why? They're like, we don't need to be saved. (laughs) We've got our religion. We're we're doing okay, Jesus. We're, We're fine exactly the way that we are. But who needs to be saved? Who are the people in this passage crying out? The peasants, right? The poor, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. That particular passage, it doesn't really mean anything to us. We read that and we're like, okay, well, that's kind of interesting. This is a very, very provocative statement. If you were a Jewish person and if you knew your scripture, which a lot of Jewish people would have, right? Because this would have evoked a story, right? So, So check it out. The son of David, the the, the so-called son of David, is telling the blind and the lame, come into the temple. There is a story in 2 Samuel 5.8. It's a weird story, brothers and sisters. It's a very weird story. But in this passage, um, David says something where uh, I didn't show you the other part. It's so weird. David says, I hate the blind and the lame in my soul. Like, what? King David, what? Right? And then later it says, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. Now, we're not going to go over the whole context. I don't think David really meant blind and the lame, like you guys are my mortal enemies. There were these people called the Jebusites. And it seems that he's connecting the blind and the lame to them. And it seems like he is responding to something that they did to David. Right, But what ends up is this statement, this very provocative statement. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And by the way, guess when this passage happens? What is going on in this? David has just taken the city of Jerusalem. David has entered Jerusalem. What is Jesus doing? Jesus has entered Jerusalem. And when David enters Jerusalem, he makes this weird statement, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. The NIV translates it as the palace. There are other people who think he means the temple. We're not really sure, but it started to become a saying. People just started to say that the blind and the lame shall not come into the house, 
right? And it seems to be, a lot of scholars have studied this, it seems to be that the blind and the lame were not allowed into the temple, probably because of this. And also, it was very clear, for priests, you could not have any physical defect. And what are a couple physical defects that they point out in, in, in particular? Blindness and lameness, right? This is not a place for the blind and the lame. If you have blemishes, if you are weak, if there is something wrong with you, then you are not worthy of coming into the house of the Lord. Right? Now, I want to be very clear. It doesn't actually say that in Scripture, other than coming out of the, the mouth of David. As far as I, in my investigation of scripture. So don't think that this was God saying, you can't come into the temple if you're blind or lame. But the people, it seems that that's the way they interpreted this. Ah, see, you're not worthy of coming into the table, the temple. Now, can you imagine this? Jesus, his mission. What is Jesus trying to do? He's trying to bring about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God about? Well, I'll tell you what it's not about. (laughs) Charging people a service fee (laughs) to have a more convenient sacrifice. It's definitely not about that, right? Can you imagine Jesus? He walks into the temple and there is this temple of the, uh, sorry, the court of the Gentiles, which is probably, it was the largest space in the temple. Uh, and it wasn't really considered the temple proper, but th- that's probably where this money changing and the selling of the doves was taking place, right? Now, we don't know exactly if the, the uh, blind and the lame were allowed there. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't, right? But look at what Jesus says. Uh, let, let's go and see the whole passage in context, where he says... Uh, and the blind, oh, sorry. Yeah, let's go back over here. Um, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers, right? So they're buying and selling this stuff. They're doing things to make themselves richer and more powerful. And Jesus is like, no, no. This is supposed to be a house of prayer, right? This is supposed to be a place where who can come? The poor and the lame, right? The blind and the lame, right? And so then when he welcomes them in, uh, the chief priests and the scribes, they saw the wonderful things that he did. Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, they were yelling these things. And he, they said, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise. And so what, what Jesus does, I think, is this. He clears room in the temple. He clears room in the temple for all the people to come. And specifically, we see blind and lame people coming. And then this weird part about children. Now, um, I, I read this in a commentary that children were not allowed in the temple. You know, this is part of the reason why you have bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, right? You become a man or a woman, and then you can come and worship properly. So it, it's not very likely that he's talking about literal children. But who is he talking about here? Um, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And it's very interesting that Jesus decides to include both of those. Mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. I know he's quoting scripture, but we already see that Jesus sometimes, you know, will not, you know, use the whole verse in context, which is okay, right? But he, he decides to use mouth of infants and nursing babies. What do you know about infants and nursing babies? What do you know about that? Remember, he's not literally talking about actual physical children. He's talking about adults. Has anyone ever called you a baby? <laughs> what? It's, it's not usually a compliment, is it? <laughs> do you remember, uh, so like people were always wanting to bring babies to Jesus, right? Children. And the disciples were like, no, 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 
No, that, that's not proper, right? Hey, maybe after they have their bar mitzvah, maybe after they have bar, their, their bat mitzvah, maybe they can come to Jesus, right? But not now. No, no, don't, don't waste his time. And Jesus says, do, no, 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 don't prevent the children from coming. And do you remember another time when he's talking to Nicodemus? And what does he tell Nicodemus? You are a teacher of Israel, and you're so grown, right? You know all these things, but you lack something. And this is what you lack. You actually have to reverse age. You have to be born again. You have to become a child again. You remember that? And Nicodemus is like, what in the world are you talking about? This makes no sense. What, what is, would it mean to call somebody not just an infant? You know, you're a child, right? That, that seems like an insult. But you're a nursing baby. Why is there a distinction between a baby who's just a baby and a nursing baby? So we call this uh, being weaned, right? That, that before you're weaned, a baby has to get their milk from the mom, right? And they are completely dependent, completely helpless. We don't like being called babies because all a baby can do is scream and cry and poop and, right? All a baby can do is declare that they need something, right? And not declare <laughs> with words, right? They just cry. That's all babies do, right? They're completely helpless. Yes, if you've seen a baby in most contexts, they're completely loved, but they are not loved because they deserve it. They love because their parents, or they're loved because their parents love them. Just because. Just because of who they are. Right? A baby doesn't earn that status. So you have Nicodemus, you have the Pharisees, you have these very powerful religious people. And they have worked very hard to learn all of their Torah, right? To do all the right things, to follow all their laws. And Jesus says, you know what you need to do? You need to become a baby. You need to become born again. You need to be stripped of all your power. And they're like, Jesus, that makes no sense, and we're definitely not going to do that. Right? So who is it that needs a Savior, brothers and sisters? I mean, it's the people who are in need, right? It's the people who are helpless. You know, that's what this is all about. I think that for many of us, we um, uh, talk about Christianity, and we like Christianity to a certain point, but we like very neat Christianity. And, and what neat Christianity has looked like to me is, yes, I need a Savior because I'm a sinner, or I was a sinner, right? I was a sinner at some point, and so I'm like, Jesus, save me. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm not a sinner anymore. <laughs> I'm saved. That's awesome. You know, and then I'm on the other side of that. Why am I so quick to get on the other side of needing a savior? I think maybe for, for me, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but maybe it's similar. That maybe for many of us, we don't like the idea of being powerless. Have you ever um, not wanted someone to help you? Have you ever been in that situation? You're like, no, no, hey, 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 like seriously, I got this, I'm fine. You're like, oh no, it's no problem, I, I, I want to help you, right? And you're like, no, no, seriously, I got it, right? What is that about? What is that about? Why are so many of us so not willing to be helped, right? And by the way, brothers and sisters, I know we started this, this passage was Jesus talking about what the temple is and what it isn't. It's not a place where he wants the powerful to get more powerful. That's not what it's about. Or the rich to get richer. Mm, no, that's not what it's about. On the backs of other people, for sure. No, that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. When do you guys pray? And when do you not pray? <laughs> I'll tell you, for me, when I pray, it's usually when I need something. It's usually when I'm struggling, right? It's usually when I'm hurting. It's usually when I'm desperate. I'm like, God, why? God, can you help me? God, can you save me? God, I need help. 
Or, God, I'm sorry. You know, I, I feel so guilty. I feel so ashamed, right? It is a very vulnerable thing to pray to God. And for most of us, we only pray when we need help. Has this ever happened to you? You know, you go through that season of struggle and difficulty, and you're very thankful for that. You're like, thank you, God. Awesome. And then you don't pray. You, you go to a season where everything seems fine. You're like, oh, man, I got this. I got this. You know, everything's going my way. And, and like in, in that prayer of repentance, like when things start going your way, you, sometimes we start taking credit. You know, and we're like, well, I got here because I'm awesome. You know, I got here because I worked hard. You know, or even if you are thankful, maybe for many of us, you know, you think to yourself at some point, maybe you hear the pastor talking about prayer and you're like, huh, that's interesting. I'm not praying as much as I used to. Hmm. Why am I not praying anymore? Is it because you have no need anymore? You don't need a savior anymore. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that when we say savior, I know that is a loaded term. And it does mean that Jesus saves your soul so that you can be with him forever. It does mean that. But in this passage, I'm not sure that that's what it means. There's all these people who are being oppressed. That What scholars think is that about 98% of the people were poor. 98%. What? It doesn't make sense, right? What kind of world is that that they live in? Can you understand why they yearned for a Savior? And was their Savior just, okay, Jesus, life is really hard, but, you know, maybe someday we'll get to be with God forever. Maybe, but I think it was more than that. They really did have a hope that Jesus would take some of these things in this world and flip them upside down, right? Jesus, save us. And when they've said that, they meant save us from Roman oppression, right? Maybe for some of them, they meant save us from this oppressive religious system, right? And so here they are in the temple, and it's getting... I mean, yeah, it's getting a little uncomfortable for the powerful, for the rich, for the people who've been profiting from this system when they're saying, save us, son of David, right? And so, brothers and sisters, for many of us, I wonder, I wonder, I know this sounds strange, even if you are a Christian, Maybe you've gone to your to church your whole life. Maybe for some of you, if you're really being honest, you think to yourself, I don't need a savior. I know that doesn't sound like a very like uh, Christian thing to say, you know? It, it doesn't seem like something that we would want to admit. But if we're being honest, I wonder how many of us would really say that. Jesus, actually, thank you, but no thank you. I'm going to do the project on my own. (laughs) I'm going to figure this out, right? I'm going to get my crap together. I'm going to figure out my mental health situation, right? I'm going to figure out that mess with my friends. I'm going to figure out that mess at work. I'm going to figure out whatever problems that I'm having. It's just I don't have enough willpower. I'm lazy, you know, so I just need to, to, to learn how to organize my time a little bit better. Right? If I do all of these things, and then, and then, and then, what? And then I will be worthy. Brothers and sisters, what does Jesus want to make us? What does he want to make the Pharisees? Why is he telling Nicodemus this? I mean, yeah, okay, maybe there's like the, the, the blind and the lame. And the people who are really in trouble, the poor, but Nicodemus is not one of them. Why? What does he want to do for Nicodemus? For Nicodemus, he says, I want to make you a child, born again. I want your worth, Nicodemus, not to be in the things you have achieved, in your you know, religious goodness, but simply in being embraced by God, being a child of God. 
This is how you enter God's kingdom. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies. Out of the mouth of who? My children. My children. And and Jesus makes it abundantly clear. These are not particularly gifted children. (laughs) These children have not worked hard. These children are not following Torah. Right? They're not following the law. They're not doing everything right. Some of these children can't do anything but just drink milk. They're still nursing. They're completely helpless. They're completely dependent. Right? These are the people who need a Savior. And these are the people who find a Savior. I mean, brothers and sisters, look at the story. It it kind of reminds me in some ways of the story of the prodigal son. Right? The prodigal son. There's the older son who's doing everything right. But at the end of the story, the one who did everything wrong is the one who is there with the father partying and eating the fattened calf. Where does the older son end up at the end of the story? He's on the outside. He's not in the party. And he's sulking and he's angry. I mean, look at who... In this story, who are the people who are celebrating? Who are the people who are, are, who have joy and happiness? It's the blind. It's the lame. Right? It's the poor. Who are the people who are pissed off in this story? <laughs> who are the people who don't have joy? It's the people who've been doing everything right. And brothers and sisters, I'm not telling you that doing everything right is, is bad. I'm telling you that doing everything right will not earn you your worthiness. Doing everything right will not save you. Because at the end of the day, this is what all of us want. We want to be saved in more ways than one. We want someone to tell us, you know what? You're doing a good job. You know what? You're a good person. You know what? I believe in you. You know, I'm proud of you. I love you. You're worthy. You're enough. That's what all of us want at the end of the day. That's what everyone is, is, is yearning for. And, and there's this whole system that Jesus was up against where a whole class of people, just because of the way they were born, out of no fault of their own, and maybe sometimes out of fault of their own, but for whatever reason, they have been deemed, you are not worthy. You cannot come in. And Jesus says, this is not the kingdom of God. Am I the Messiah? Yes, I am. And this is what my kingship looks like. Everyone comes in. We open up the doors. We flip over the tables. We create a system where my temple is now a house of prayer for all nations, for all people. There is no more entrance fee. All you got to do is be willing to come in. That's what we call faith. That's what faith is. Faith is not a moral test. Faith is the willingness to come in. Faith is the willingness to be embraced. Faith is the willingness to cry out. Faith is the willingness to be desperate. That's what faith is, right? And that's the only thing that earns you admission. It's something that most people would have mocked back then. Look how pathetic they are, just crying, those beggars. Even in our society, don't we mock beggars? You know, there are many, many Christian saints through the years that they say, you know what? I'm a proud beggar. (laughs) I'm a beggar of Jesus. We hate that. In our society, our society is all about power. We don't want to be the beggar. We don't want to ask for help, right? We think that God helps those who help themselves. John chapter 25, right, guys? John chapter 25, God helps those who help themselves. There's no John chapter 25. (laughs) But we think, it kind of sounds like scripture. (laughs) That's the scripture of America, brothers and sisters. That's not the scripture of the kingdom. The scripture of the kingdom is you are all welcome. But you need to understand, you need to know, you are not good enough to save yourself. And that's okay. That's okay. God already knew that. God already knew you would fail. God already knew that you would sin. God already knew that you would stumble. 
God already knew you would make mistakes. God already knew that you would screw up that relationship. He already knew that. And he's not saying, hey, you go clean yourself up and then you come in. He's saying, the doors are wide open. You are embraced. You are loved. You are welcome. I heard there's this saying uh, that that when we say that people are are uncomfortable, they say, um, you're sweating more than a sinner in church. (laughs) Where do we get that saying? Brothers and sisters, you may think that we're only talking about Judaism. We are not. We are talking about any institutional religion that makes it so that You are climbing the annals of power to achieve more power. You are climbing the ladder of worthiness to get more worthiness. You are climbing the the ladder of right behavior in order to get some kind of blessing. That is not the good news. That is not the gospel. That is not the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, right? Jesus is bringing... A gospel, I, I know maybe this sounds like, like I'm going too far, but I don't think I am. He's bringing a gospel of failure. He's bringing a gospel of weakness. This is your entrance. Your entrance is just admitting that. That's your entrance fee. <laughs> if you want to call it a fee. It's just honesty. God, I'm just not that good. God, I, I, I screwed up. God, I sinned. Brothers and sisters, um, we have a word for the ways that we try to cover up um, our unworthiness. And, and it's a word that actually, you know, they, they came to call one of the seven deadly sins. And I, I'm almost a little reticent to mention it because I feel like we just automatically think anything that sounds bad is not us. But I want us, brothers and sisters, if you are in that position where, you know, maybe for some of us, we don't really pray as much because we're doing pretty well. And maybe there is this element of this word. It's the P word. It's called pride. Right? And it is this idea that I can live this life without God, that I can be God, that I can save myself, right? And many of us, we have our self-salvation projects, right? And for the Israelites and for um, the, the, the people of this time, it was the law. That was the self-salvation project, right? And that's why the law has to come to an end. Because what Jesus has come to do is save, right? I I always like to end uh, Palm Sunday (laughs) by recognizing how ironic it was in some ways. You know, there's this word. I I know maybe not everyone. I happen to be Korean, and there's this is just the only word that I can think of that has like similar meaning. Um, where people say things like, like, manse or something like that. And people don't really know what it means anymore. Or they even take like an English word and they go, fighting, right? And like, what does that mean? Right? And you just say these things and it really doesn't mean anything. But it just means like, like, yeah, go, you know, you can do it, right? I'm excited, you know? Um, and I wonder if it was like that for these people. These people in the streets who were yelling this thing that they didn't even know what it meant. Hosanna! Hosanna! Hosanna in the highest! Save in the highest! Right? Well, what does that mean? They don't know what that means. But they're just yelling it. And I think the ultimate grace is this. There's all these people who are yelling, save me. And at the end of the week, many of these people would be yelling, crucify him. And many of these people don't know what they're saying. They don't understand who Jesus truly is. But this is the grace. Jesus saves them anyways. Even if they didn't understand. Even if they didn't say it the right way. Right? Even if they didn't dot their I's and cross their T's, Jesus still saved them. Brothers and sisters, 
I see it time and time again. The people who find the Savior are the people who reach out for the Savior, the people who know they need a Savior. And so I want to ask the praise team to come up, and I want to just give us some time to pray. I I invite you to come out on Good Friday. Brothers and sisters, I understand. I understand thinking about sin, talking about sin, talking about the ways that we don't measure up, talking about needing a Savior. It's not fun. It's, it's, It's not maybe what we would prefer or what we feel like doing, but maybe it's what we need most. I joke around sometimes, and it's actually true, that, you know, Good Friday service is traditionally not a very well-attended service across the board in America. You know, that, that's why a lot of times churches are like, okay, we're, we're going to talk about the cross on Palm Sunday because you may miss it, you know. But brothers and sisters, um, I, I want to encourage you not to flinch from Jesus and his suffering and his death. Jesus goes through suffering and death. But he also invites you to go through suffering and death. Why? Because on the other side is resurrection. But you must go through suffering and death. It's what we call the Paschal mystery. Out of death comes life. Out of need comes provision, right? Out of desperation comes uh, complete satisfaction. Out of our chaos and disorder comes peace. But for many of us, we run from it. And even running from it could be, in a way, our own self-salvation project, our own way of denying our need for a Savior, right? And so I want to encourage you, if you are in pain, if you are uh, not doing well, in whatever it is in life, you're feeling unworthy, you're, you're, you're feeling um, like a failure, Whatever it is, we can play some, some music. I feel like this would just go better with some music, yeah? <laughs> um, whatever it is you're going through, brothers and sisters. Oh, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> I almost want to start over. but <laughs> Whatever it is you're going through, brothers and sisters, just know you can bring that before God. You can. That's what this is about. It's not that you're good enough. It's that he's good enough. Right? It's not that only Jesus is the one who gets wounded. It's that we're wounded too. Right? Jesus is not just the son of God. He's the son of man. He is the icon of humanity. He takes all of our suffering on. And he goes through it just like we do. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to to be hurt, to go through physical pain. He knows what it's like to be mocked and to be gossiped against, to be talked about behind his back. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. Brothers and sisters, if you've ever experienced that, then the cross is for you as well. We are invited to come and to be uh, saved, but we can only be saved when you need a Savior. And so, brothers and sisters, I just want to give you some time. You know, you can do this silently. You can do this out loud. You can do this quietly. You can do this loudly. By the way, Jesus already knows. God already knows. And yet, brothers and sisters, there is something about going through that Paschal mystery yourself, the rhythm of death and resurrection, to embrace, not out of any masochistic way, but to acknowledge that you are in pain and to bring that before God. We call it confession. It's just stating the true state of your soul. You don't need to clean it up before God. He already knows anyways. But brothers and sisters, probably you're not hiding it from God. You're hiding it from yourself. Right? Because we don't want to admit how much we do need a Savior, how hurting we really are, how vulnerable we feel, how exposed we feel. That's why we armor up, guys. That's why we want to be our own saviors. It's very vulnerable when someone comes and helps you. You feel helpless when someone helps you. But Jesus is telling you, brothers and sisters, I want you to become children again. 
All children know to do is cry. All they know to do is cry. So you don't need to clean up. You don't need to armor up. You don't need to pretend everything is fine. Just come exactly as you are. I know sometimes when uh, a guy up here with a microphone talks or prays, you think it's not for you. But brothers and sisters, if just you could uh, indulge me for a moment, that if you could accept that this prayer is for you, for you. God, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters, for anyone who's hurting in pain, anyone who has screwed up, or come up short. Anyone who is anxious or worried or sad or lonely. Anyone who is human. And those that we just feel so exposed when we acknowledge our pain and our need, our vulnerabilities. That's what vulnerability means. It means that you can be hurt. And we don't like being hurt, God. But Lord, we are so glad that we have a Savior. More than just a God who just (laughs) lords it on high over us. More than a God who is worthy to be praised. You're definitely worthy to be praised. But you also sent your Son into stinking, painful humanity to show us that we're not alone. And also to show us the way through. The way through is by embracing death by embracing whatever it is that kills us from this idea that we can live life without you, that we can be worthy without you, that these self-salvation projects will actually net anything, because they won't. They will just lead to more frustration, or they will lead to another round of a new project, a new thing that we will try to do to make ourselves worthy. So God, we declare we are not worthy. We declare with the saints of the ages, Hosanna, save us. Save us, O God. We need a Savior. We need your cross. We need your sacrifice, God. Thank you for knowing and being the kind of God who does know our pain, who does know what we go through and telling us we are not alone. Thank you, God, for the ways that you will transmute the pain that my brothers and sisters are going through. Maybe my words aren't bringing much comfort because we're thinking to ourselves, but I'm still in pain. I just want this to be over. And God, I pray that we may trust in you and your timing to know that the only way out is through. That we can't speed up the process, but to know that you are with us, you are transforming it, and all our tears, all our sorrow, all our pain will turn into joy and to dancing and to celebration. God, we believe that. We thank you, God, for your cross, for your resurrection, for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.